Hello and welcome to The Silence Between, your Winnipeg Symphony Orchestra's official podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Buzash, the principal second violin of the Winnipeg Symphony, and today we have a violinist roundtable with special guest Benjamin Schmidt and Carl Stoby. Today we're going to talk about violins, bows, the Corn Gold Violin Concerto. Sit back and enjoy. So we are coming to you from uh, Ford Cafe on McDermott, and uh, we have Carl Stoby here with us. Hi. And we have Benjamin Schmidt, our guest soloist this week. Hi. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Um, so uh, I wanted to tell you that me and Carl are big instrument nerds. Yeah. So we love violins and bows and all those kinds of things. So um, can you tell us a little bit about your instrument? Yes. Um, I play on a violin by Antonio Stradivarius from the year 1718. It's called the Exviotti, Ex-Rosé. Um, so obviously, uh, Giambattista Viotti played on this one mm-hmm. and made it famous. And um, then Rosé actually um, had it for 50 years. Rosé was one of the uh, big concert masters of Vienna Philharmonic between 1890 and uh, 1935 mm. until he had to leave, unfortunately. Um, and uh, he played on that violin more than 50 years wonderful violin uh, in the midst of the golden period of Stradivari. For me, the finest Stradivari I ever had. I had the pleasure to play on a few ones so far. Um, None of them are mine, but um, this one is also lent to me by the Austrian National Bank. And obviously, it became 300 years last year, and I became 50 years last year, so (laughs) we celebrated together. And... um, the violin is incredibly clean and clear mm-hmm. um, in the sound and has a wonderful G-string as well. The registers are, are amazing. E-string couldn't be better and G-string is very much in the character of his G-string. Mm-hmm. And it's like playing on a filter of beauty all the time. So I am... Very fortunate and on my knees every day when I practice and have the pleasure to to experience those sounds. But you know, I do like violins as well and I, for example, I also play on a modern violin. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that also very much for different reasons. Uh, and uh, But this Stradivari is um, it's quite a miracle. Mm. What is your uh, modern instrument? My modern instrument is by a female maker, Austrian maker, called Wiltrud Fowler. Okay. And she's absolutely amazing. Um, This lady, um, she uh, made her way through Austria, but then Paris, Los Angeles, and New York. She led the workshop of Sigmontowicz for about 10 years. Wow, okay. She was pretty much in the epicenter of things and got to know many great instruments and made a lot of copies of those and she developed her own style and I have an instrument that is a copy of the Henrik Wieniawski Stradivari of 
1715 okay. or 16 and that's a copy and I just love that violin it's um, it was a love on first sight I have it since four years now and I play quite some concerts on it uh, for certain repertoires I even prefer it to to the Stradivari hmm. and it's also wonderful to have a violin at home that that is a normal violin yeah and that you don't have to uh, worry about so much all the time. Yeah, and I feel especially um, Zygmuntovich violins are very reliable. Like they're all-purpose fiddles. Yeah. They're good for a lot of things. Yeah. And so it's this one. It's it's. Um, I really have to must recommend it heavily because for me also that violin is quite a miracle. When I play on it, I I feel maybe that was the feeling that Stradivari violins had 300 years ago when you first played them because mm -hmm. I was one of the first one playing them and it was there immediately and I um, like the, the, you know violin playing is so much about connecting two notes that's really the essence of our instrument and this violin could connect to it's, it's, it's melting in each other and mm -hmm. it has um, that nice patina that melts sounds together and uh, uh, other than that, it's just incredibly powerful and there's no limit in what you can do with it in terms of pressure and, mm -hmm. and active bow hands. So that's a lot of fun. And it always sounds. When you play on it, you have a feeling that this violin is amplified. You mm. are in a cloud of sound. Amazing. With the Strat, it's different qualities. It's just total heaven and nobility and aristocracy and you just, you know... It's hard to describe, but that's that's something from God. Mm. So, and I feel like um, I don't know if you felt this, Carl, but in rehearsal, um, especially the G on this Viotti Strad is really um, the G string is really rounded, and yeah, full-bodied. Especially that's what it I has noticed. a wonderful ca character. Yeah. Mm -hmm, yeah. Did you notice the arch was oh, like yeah, it's quite full? Yeah, that's right. It's yeah. it's a it's a it's. I mean, when we say the arch is full, I think we mean it's 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 a it's a we would call it kind of a fat violin. It, 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 it's not, it's not, um, the, the wood bends around quite a bit. It makes it quite high. Um, whereas we call a, a flatter arch, uh, one that's narrower and, 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 uh, typically speaking, a violin with a, with a fat arch has a, has a really rich, um, and sweet sound. And I certainly could hear that on the, uh, on the Strad you played today. Um, beautiful violin. And, and it looks like it has a lot of varnish on it. It's, uh, it's in good condition still. Still very beautiful violin. Um, After 300 years, it's quite amazing yeah, that yeah. these violins yeah. are still so no, meticulous. This, this one is, is great. What I really like about it is also the uh, extreme clarity of sound. Mm. Um, so, you know, there's, you can't pressure a thread like that without limits, but uh, when you let it sound and you... Um, just play it as it is then the clarity beats everything and that's in the end that's also something that cuts through so even as a player and interpreter I'm very much into clarity clarity of sound clarity of form clarity of articulation clarity of thoughts and of directions musical directions um, clarity of intonation <laughs> so um, and this instrument is is in that way um, so that's important to me yeah and, and when you got this instrument um, 
Did you have to, uh, did you feel that your bows matched it well? Did you have to invest in a new bow to kind of um, match it or? Well, I was just going to say that when we talked about the G-string and everything, you know, it's so much connected to what you play as a bow and how you use your bow, of course, and all that. So I'm changing bows with repertoire, actually. Mm. And um, I have several bows, so I had a, quite some possibility of choice to, to make with the Strat. And, and now I'm playing quite a monster, the Quangol Concerto. Um, I play a Grand Adam bow, okay. which I love. And it's actually not a monster, but when you play it, you feel like it's a very heavy limousine hmm. uh, that is fitting very fat on the street. Maybe that's also what Carl got out of the sound, that it has quite a round or a, a complex yeah. uh, quality to it. And that, that's the bow as well. And I use that bow for big orchestra concerts, su such as Brahms or, or Corn Gold, where you really need very uh, central and full-bodied sound. And... Um, this bow is actually not really heavy. It's mm. below 60 grams, and uh, it's, um, it's just balanced so well. I love that bow very, very much when I play Tchaikovsky Concerto or something, mm. because it gives an incredible security also to the player, because you feel like in a big car. It's, it's amazing. Um, but I also have a wonderful Dominique Picard that, that I use a lot, and that fits very well to that violin because it's a bit more elegant. The, the Picard has everything. It, it has the elegance and it has the big sound as well. Mm -hmm. So, but even when I play other violins, I change balls with the repertoire always. And Paul uh, um, does a lot to the sound and does a lot to your playing, mm. and that's an interaction. Yeah, I, I find it's 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 difficult a bit to find a bow that does everything in yeah. every you know I haven't found it yet yeah <laughs> but again I'm also into modern bows okay uh, there can be great stuff and they do copies and um, likewise like the violins those modern things they just work mm -hmm. and you don't need to worry about old screws or anything that would be very happy to ensure. Mm, yeah, yeah. Do you have any favorite modern makers, bow makers? Um, well, I have a Thomas Shaw, I, mm -hmm. which I like very much. I have a. I sometimes played on a Gabbert. And I have a Ghana Wilson that is nice, but uh, you know, I try out things. Mm, this actually Schmidt from Dresden. I know one bow that I would buy immediately, but mm. unfortunately, it's not mine. Tell me, with your modern violin, did you commission it? Um, yes, but the first one I commissioned because um, uh, I know this lady probably already 10 years. And the great thing about working with a living violin maker is that you can adjust all the time and actually work on the violin. So um, I commissioned a violin and she made a copy of the... Stern del Gesù, the what is it called? Panocca the the Panet? Panet. Yeah. Yeah. And that was great, um, but it didn't connect to me as much as this one. And then a few years later, she 
said, I have a new violin, can I show it to you? And she always shows me her new stuff. And it was about three notes and I, I knew I had to change and this is a connection. And my wife was actually coming from the other room immediately and saying, what is this violin? She, she didn't know at all and it was something special from the beginning. So Wiltrud was keen enough to exchange my violins and now my Del Gesù copy is somewhere else in Austria with the concertmaster. Um, so I do commission from her and I work with her all the time and we we try to optimize things almost every month and, and she says it needs working and I want it to be perfect for you in any sense physically and sound wise and we have so many discussions about that and it's so great to actually work on your violin and, mm -hmm. and not being too afraid of touching it and changing things. Um, Wiltrud says the secret of the great violins of the Viomso or something is they, they've been opened, you know, 20 times and made mm. better. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to find out things. So tell me, what, what does that look like when, when you say you're working through a violin? So you make suggestions as to what you think needs to happen in sound or in yeah, playability? In or? Yeah, we, so first of all, physically, I need to be able to play fifth in tune, for example. Sure. Uh, so the, the, the distance between strings needs to be absolutely optimized and personalized for me. Mm -hmm. um, and I know pretty much exactly what. And then also the distance from the fingerboard, of course, it's normal stuff. Uh, but it needs to be discussed and, and very little changes can make a big difference for you as a player. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so that's the physical side. But then we talk about sound and then there's normal adjustments to the weather situation twice a year when the heating period and starts and goes uh, there we usually especially with a new instrument you need to adjust the sound post or put a new one or um, and then I say I, I call her but something is dividing on D string I have a problem on on certain note can we do something about can you listen to this or for example and she comes over always takes a train to come over one two hours and and then uh, she listens to it and then you know she tries things out and and I say yeah that's that's the direction I want to go and and then sometimes she would build a new sound post and um, so it's mainly set up between right. bridge and sound post but um, many details that uh, lead to a satisfying result do you find um, you, you said that you said that you changed the instrument changed the setup of the instrument often dependent on weather and the seasons do you find that your new instrument or your old instrument is more susceptible to change does this is the strad more stable or is it less stable no the strad is less stable I would say but the new instrument is only five years old so it's still growing and it's still working and um, uh, so th th there's different adjustments, but the Strat, of course, is more sensible to weather situations. Mm -hmm. And I have that serviced anyways twice a year with, a, with my violin maker in Vienna, Marcel Richters, who is a great guy and is in charge of the Nationalbank Instrumente. And we are obliged to do it with him and, and he's absolutely wonderful. Um, and, and for example, the Strat opens much, much more often. Mm -hmm. Modern instrument never had, a, I think, an opening. They are quite stable, but, right. but then we are trying more things. We are also trying strings all the time. And, yeah. uh, but the Strat is 
not oversensitive. Right. I, I'm quite. It's an instrument that is actually not di not difficult to play. So, but um, I would say four times a year I actually really go see the doctor and, and try out little shifts or adjustments or strings or in the worst case a new bridge and uh, so you know even when you clean your violin inside and out it sounds different already you need, yeah. you need service all the time and it's uh, actually a quite time consuming um, if you have a few instruments like I have also have a violin and I have Chanot and I have different bows and also to keep bows in shape mm. And, and keep the right strings on all your instruments. I'm, I'm busy all the time and it costs me a lot of time and money. But, but on the other hand, I can choose for different situations and that's my passion. And, but I recommend having only two instruments really that you play on because otherwise life gets too complicated. Yeah, it's hard to switch between the two, yeah? yeah it's not so hard to switch between the two, but you don't want to service more than two instruments yeah. if you really use them. For example, the modern instrument, obviously, I go, I take when I teach. I can, I could never take the Strat on a bike, for example. I, I, right. can, I can bicycle to my university to teach. But there I do it with a modern instrument. And actually, I can show everything almost easier on the modern instrument because it's so responsive to any kind mm -hmm. of sound modulation. I'm very happy teaching on it. And also, it's a normal violin that you pack on your back and, and you right, you're ride not terrified a bike about and it's it all the time, so yeah. great. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, I wanted to ask you about um, any stories from the concert stage. Any like funny stories that have happened to you. I'll, I'll, I'll say one of mine, for example. I was, um, there was one time a long time ago, I was playing Chanson Poem and at the back of the first violins, someone's bridge went flying off the instrument and shot across the stage like <laughs> it's like a gunshot and it was right near the end so thankfully it was like okay this i don't have to be rattled by this you know in midway through the show but yeah uh i have i have one um and people who know me know i i i i keep tabs on conductor stories um and there was a moment i will i'll never say who it was um but there was a moment in a concert. I was sitting concertmaster of an orchestra, and something had happened in the last line of the piece. It was a small, it was a small little detail. Something had gotten lost, and it was, it was, it was not a big deal. Nobody would have noticed. But the conductor and I talked to the conductor afterwards. He had said, "Well, I, we were right, you know, just four bars from the end of the piece, and I thought, oh, that mistake happened earlier. I should have fixed it in rehearsal." And he's conducting away, and the orchestra has stopped playing because we finished the piece. But he's keeping on going because he's obsessed about the, the, the little mistake that had happened. He realized everybody had stopped, and he made this kind of great flourish. I burst out laughing. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know what to do other than to say... I've, I've had that. Conductors who, who still conduct when the music is gone. Yeah. <laughs> stopped already, yeah. I mean, I'm glad it's never... Well... I mean, everybody has had, uh, every violinist I know has had a little moment where, they're, where they played where they're not supposed to play, but actually conducting a bar after the piece is over, I think. That's quite something. That's, yeah, that's, it's a good thing they don't make any sound. Yeah. Except I made a sound because I was laughing. <laughs> <laughs> we also, there was one time here in Winnipeg, actually, we played uh, Shostakovich Symphony. I don't, I, my memories, 
thinks that is the sixth symphony, but I'm not I'm not real sure on that. At the end, there's a, a crash symbol that happens right at the very end of the piece, and the crash symbol is the ones where the, where a percussionist has two symbols, and and he crashes them together with his hands, and the 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 uh, symbol at the end, the strap broke in his hands, so he crashed the symbol together, and the strap broke, and he dropped it, and the symbol, the whole piece had ended, and the symbol rolled, it fell on the floor, and it started rolling down the floor, so you hear this, this symbol just kind of rolling down, and then it gets into one of those, um, uh, it's hard to say this on, on uh, audio, where, you know, where a top starts kind of rolling on the floor, it goes, and then the, the percussionist Final. just stepped on the thing to stop it at the end of the piece. The conductor is trying to wave his hands to get the guy to stop, but this symbol will not be, will not be quiet. It, it took at least five seconds after the piece was over for the whole thing to That is down. great. That's a great story. I remember once there was... Um, I don't even remember what piece it was, but um, we were playing and uh, there was a big... Everyone had to do a big up bow, and someone actually hit their bridge with the bow and snapped it in half. You and the bridge stories. I've never I don't know. Happened to me. Something, something with bridges. <laughs> well, I think several violinists also already made it in Sibelius Concerto through the violin. Yeah. In the apple. That's yeah. famous stories. Yeah. yeah. Like yeah. really right through. Yeah. Going in one F hole and coming out the other oh, one. Oh, gosh. Yeah. That's, a, that's someone's worst nightmare for sure, yeah. I think. Yeah. That... When, when you're playing with very expensive and, and very precisely worked tools, those are the stories that make all of us cringe to think of the damage that kind of can happen. And, and even to great players sometimes, mistakes like that, once in a while they happen and mm. instruments get damaged. It's a good thing now that we have people in this world who can repair instruments to such a high level. Well, they can repair anything. Yeah. There's nothing mm -hmm. that cannot be repaired with a violin. I saw a Galliano once that had been smashed into 60 pieces. Mm -hmm. And when I saw the repair, I could not see any cracks. Mm -hmm. It was perfect. It looked like it was brand new. And Sometimes I played it. it sounds better. <laughs> it sounded really good. It sounded really good. Yeah, there's that story of the, uh, the Mara cello, yeah. the Strad cello which was lost at sea and then it washed up on the it beach. It was swimming. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and it came in, in pieces and they had wow. to spend, I think, a year Still sounds it. quite good. I know the guy who plays it right now. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Astonishing what I they mean, can do. It eh? looks amazing, but yeah, they had to spend a That's really long astonishing. time. astonishing. Yeah, there are amazing stories of violence. Joshua Bell's The Gibson Strad and dis disappeared from the planet for 50 years. It was stolen and came back, was covered in black shoe polish. It's in yeah. good shape now. Yeah. Sounds good. Yeah. I think Beers also had to spend uh, about a year scraping away the uh, the shoe polish on that violin. Amazing. <laughs> Just little by little. Hmm. So um, do you have any um, specific concert rituals that you like to do before a concert? Yeah, sure. Practicing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, you know, the concert day is a day where you have to save energy. So... Mm -hmm. But you can't do nothing. So right. Too little to do something really, but too much energy to 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 not do anything. So um, uh, the ritual right before the concert for me would be ironing my shirt. That's mm -hmm. 
it's, it calms me down. I like that. It's quite the same movement, um, like stroking a bow over a violin. You can't actually slowly because you can't hurry ironing. You have to slow things down. Mm -hmm. Just takes four and a half minutes. That's what it is. And um, and then I, you know, I like to be in my room one one hour before I play. And uh, but nothing too special. Usually I take a small nap in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. um, and you know you are kind of on standby all all day. But you cannot not leave. I mean, there's too many things to do on a concert day. And also the general rehearsal needs to be a real tryout. But then you don't want to waste it all, and you don't want to show it all. Uh, and if it's too good, it's not good for the night. So rather just check on things if they are in place mm -hmm. and then try out a little emotion but then back off again and and save it for the night and uh, when I go out to the audience I'm reminding myself of uh, enjoying this and I greet the audience and I ask myself and the audience are we ready for the special right now and then the show starts and usually we are yeah how about you, Carl? Do you have any concert rituals that you like to do? Uh, if you're a soloist, let's say. Um, no, I, I would <laughs> I would agree mostly with Benjamin. I practice, but I try not to be tired. Right. Uh, and I think earlier in my, as a younger violinist, I tended to play too much on concert days, mm. and I would I would uh, I wanted to go through all of the things and then practice slowly the harder stuff and make sure I you know, had it all fresh in my head that day. And then you know, by the time you actually get on stage, you feel like your body's actually a little tired. Mm. Uh, and that's always a mistake. Then you, know, then, you cause it, then you start making mistakes. Your body's physically a little too taxed to do things mm -hmm. to be fresh. Yeah, and especially if you're traveling overseas. I mean, I think you have to be especially careful to, to save your energy. It is so incredibly difficult for us Europeans to play in the States. The first concert is always a nightmare. It's we played at two or three in the night. That's our feeling. You can you cannot really fight that feeling because mm -hmm. who has two days extra to spend in a in a country that you don't or in a town that you don't know that you have nothing to do mm -hmm. and your family sitting at home? Uh, it's impossible. So you you have usually one day before the performance and then you have to play and it's very difficult. I must say, if you do it many times, then you know somehow how it works. But um, I must say, I find it really difficult and and then uh, it's funny because the other way around I don't feel it that that heavy when I go to Japan or Asia but to go to the West is is difficult so we have to live with this um, no excuse you know but just um, so much more difficult than playing mm. a, a, a normal concert in Europe right and uh, the feeling of being tired on stage is quite nerve-wracking yeah I can imagine yeah I mean I guess there's a point where you kind of know what to expect right when you travel so much you kind yeah. of you get used to that feeling and you figure out how to adjust well that's a, that's a that, that's a theme you know um, how do you adjust to fast to jet lag mm. um, but many people could say something about that and you have to find your recipe and my latest thing is when I get in the States the first day I sleep in the morning again like because you wake up so early and mm -hmm. then 
I do my work, I practice whatever it is, and, and like at, at 11 I would sleep another hour, and then I might make it at 8 o'clock at night. Right. Um, because if you sleep in the afternoon, it's way too late. Right. It's so hard to wake up again, mm -hmm. and then you and then feel, you feel like, like, right. like remote controlled walking to the concert stage. Yeah. yeah. Tell us, um, you, you've been a long friend of Daniel Reiskin. Uh, tell us how you met and your association with him over the years. Daniel, I met uh, probably more than 25 years ago in a music festival in Austria that I actually just played again because it's been 25 years that we founded that festival and and I've been guesting a few times since. And this year I was playing a concert with all my kids in it. It was a concert that was called 25 years Hopfgarten, this is the place of the festival, 25 years Hopfgarten and the come outs of that, so um, all my kids played and we had a real fun concert in the summer, but 25 years ago I met Daniel and we were of course in our beginning or mid-twenties and, and he was the most um, lively and entertaining guy. He would entertain the whole festival group and and chamber uh, music friends. Um, and he was very funny and he had this long uh, curly hair around him and he just looked so uh, sympathetic. It was really it was really great to be with him and um, he was a great viola player then um, doing all kinds of stuff on the viola being having been assistant of the famous Kim Kashkashian in Freiburg and already pursuing an important career as orchestra player and soloist. So there we made friends basically and then um, uh, we made our way through several chamber music encounters and then uh, by the mid-90s I think uh, he uh, rediscovered with other people but he was one of the first ones to rediscover Britain double concerto for violin and viola, which is a mm. work that was published after, actually only in the beginning of the 90s. And um, Daniel was always a music historian that goes back to his father, who is really one of the most profound writers in, right. in uh, Russia. And uh, Daniel has that gene. And he would always be a, quite scientific about music as well. And there he had his connection to the Oxford Library Press and, um, and to Britain's work and to the guy who republished that work. So we ended up playing that piece um, about 45 times in many wow. different places and many of them premier performances in different countries of the work, which is actually really great Britain work. And I just played again, not with Daniel, but um, <laughs> after 10 years of break. And today I consider it even a better work than 20 years ago. Um, it's really worthwhile. And we played that a lot. We recorded that. We also played then, of course, Buchtabel and Mozart Concertante a lot. And also a fantastic piece by Arthur Benjamin called The Romantic Fantasy for Violin and Viola, written for Primrose and Heifetz. We recorded all that. and. Um, toured a lot together. It was great fun and eventually he would start conducting as well and inviting me as a conductor. And as he wrote in his notes to this concert, uh, I think in the last 25 years there hasn't pe passed one year where we wouldn't collaborate in some kind of um, musical encounter and uh, sometimes a lot. And um, through 
all of the main violin repertoire, I might say. And so he's been a great musical partner who is especially, for me, it's a special pleasure for him uh, to have him as an accompanying conductor to violin concertos because you can really prepare with him, you can really go into details and he's so reliable and he works so organized with the orchestra that it's always in the end you can always feel very free because you can totally rely on Daniel's conducting so mm -hmm. um, I'm very thankful and it's been a great friendship since then we never had any kind of conflict it's very weird uh, <laughs> so we enjoy ourselves and and look forward to cover the complete repertoire one day yeah right and and tell us uh, how how many years have you played corn gold You've, have you had a lengthy association with Cornwall Violin? Yeah, quite lengthy. Or? My teacher already played it a few times when nobody played it. Mm -hmm. uh, his name is Ernst Kovacic, my then Viennese teacher, who was very much into contemporary music as well, but also works that have been forgotten, and, and Korngold wasn't played at all. Um, so I knew it from him, but I didn't study it with him, but very soon after that, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the first time I played it was 96. So I was already an adult man with a career going, but then I got really interested in this and I realized that this is incredibly connected to what I'm doing because I'm from Vienna and I studied in the States. And um, so did Korngold, who was from the heart of Vienna, one of the biggest prodigies ever there. And, and then eventually um, emigrated to the US and make a bit, made, made a big career there, so he influenced American music a lot and American music influenced him a lot and people say Congo sounds like Hollywood but I always say Hollywood sounds like Congo because yeah, he really yeah. invented that style and there wouldn't be one Spielberg movie um, that successful if not Congo would have done all that inventions and, um, and compositions 50 years before. Williams and all yeah. the great masters. Um, so, uh, what a genius. And I discovered that and then I knew I could connect to that piece and do something special with it because it has a very strong Viennese side as well, mm -hmm. which tends to be forget forgotten, I think. Um, and it's like with any other composer, once you get to know the whole work of the man, then you understand it deeper and profound, more profound. And I'm, I'm very keen of his chamber music Right. Uh, works and and do you also play his quintet and the quartet qu quintet the quartet the suite opus 23 i played many many times i think it's a masterpiece mm -hmm. sextet as well trio opus one amazing Stri three string quartets who are mm -hmm. fantastic then the string serenade and of course f sharp minor symphony which is strange but great uh late work but then there's a cello concerto and above all the tote stadt that orchestra uh, that opera is, is, is just a continuous sound explosion. Uh, it's a complete miracle of instrumentation and of anything that he writes and every bar just sounds so great. Um, and this is a score that is incredibly big and complex, uh, but he could master and imagine all these sounds probably better than most of his colleagues. So. I'm quite fanatic about not only his instrumentation, but maybe in the first place his harmonic world. I always call it some kind of third 
Viennese school because he found a way between Brahms and Schoenberg, a third way that would actually be on the borderline of tonality but still remained to it and and expanded it in a, for me, most attractive harmonic way. It's very complex and I don't understand everything he writes, every scale, every lick that is in the, that violin concerto is is actually, for me also as a jazz musician, it's very interesting because it has a lot of diminished and and altered scales, but um, I don't even understand all of them, but it's it's so um, attractive and so inventive and so genius how he expand, expanded tonality and harmonies and polyharmonic writing. So is that, I, I was, Korngold to me is, had, a, had an interesting history in, 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 in music circles and that for quite a while we kind of had forgotten about him and, and I, don't, I don't think we liked his music particularly and it wasn't, the problem wasn't that it was too avant-garde or it was too um, atonal or too kind of way out there. It was, in some ways, Korngold's music is is almost regressionist, com- as you said, compared to the sort of the second Vienna yeah, school yeah, of yeah, Schoenberg. Yeah. He, he goes backwards. He goes backwards. And, and I mean, I, I guess I'm asking is, um, why do you think it took the world, you know, 30 years after, 40 years after he died for us to actually say, hey, this is really great music? Well, I have a quite clear answer to that. Um, I think in Europe we had the same experiences that his music was not asked for and not loved and not played for about 30-40 years and my answer to that is because it's actually a bit too beautiful and too luscious and people after the Second World War were not ready to have post-romantic music and they couldn't see the beauty in it and the craftsmanship, the incredible craftsmanship mm-hmm. about it. Um, but just heard sweet sounds and they thought... Then he was confused with film music, which is another big chapter, which is a bit sad because his absolute music is, is probably some of his best and, and that's where he comes from and we shouldn't discuss about that. Um, but um, it needed decades to to be able to enjoy modern romantic music again and it's not romantic music I really I thought it, it I would call it a you can steal music or a post-romantic music yeah. because mm. it goes, goes much further than than usual romantic music just um, he in one letter he wrote there's wonderful books about him the last one is came out it's just letters between him and his family when he emigrated and, and in one of them he says um, as much as he has all the respect for his big Viennese colleagues such as Zemlinski, Berg, Schoenberg above all and uh, Webern but he would never um, uh, take that step out of um, tonality and he said very clearly for me he said more, more or less um, excusing himself uh, but he he cannot uh, uh, for, for, for him good music is still defined by harmony melody and rhythm and he cannot go beyond these parameters you can take them very far but he will always still stick to them and if you actually listen to the middle section of the second 
movement uh, in the violin concerto, this, this uh, kind of E major, E minor interchanging section. And the, the motif I play there is almost a crepes of a main motif in the Verklärte Nacht from, from Schönberg. It always reminds me very much. Mm. And I play. Right. It's, it's very. So I think he had certain also. Um, respects for sure but also even citations and and came close to atonality and but he said he doesn't want to cross that border completely and I have a lot of feeling for that because I love abstract music and I love modern music but um, I think sometimes uh, we got too far with um, um, in, in, in modern music writing with um, writing theoretically and uh, not uh, somehow connecting to what was before. Um, in a way, 12-tone music for me is the first break in music history where theory was standing before um, praxis, how do you say that, for, before experience. Yeah. Somebody defined a new language, the rules before they were actually experienced. and. That might have been a problem, because um, until then, music was always defined, or um, the terminology of music was defined uh, by what had happened, and then, and there they reversed the process. And um, um, I also think it's um, we shouldn't be ashamed of of loving music that actually still uh, contains those parameters, music, harmony and, uh, and melody. And these were Congol's rules and uh, I think in his own right he, he took it to a very personal level. Yes, I, I always like um, getting the opportunity actually to play uh, the Korngold with just the orchestra because you really get to hear how detailed and colorful his yeah. orchestration is. Yeah, yeah. And there's so many amazing effects that, mm-hmm. like the, the flutter tongue flute, and yeah. you know, it's just it's the most amazing. Or the, the, the vibraphone that comes the in vibraphone. at the end of the of the second movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Amazing. It is really quite spectacular. Because you asked about how long I played the concerto, so 95. So that's what 25 years ago mm. I played it for the first time, and then. Played a few times and then um, I have to say that because it's quite remarkable. I was the first one to play it with the Vienna Philharmonic. They never wow. played it before. Wow, it's wow. a Viennese composer, and and that was quite an experience, of course. And it was a big thing. We played it a few times uh, in different places, and and then I took it to Japan and everything. And this was still a time in 2002, 2003 when it was not played too much, and. Also through through those concerts, I think we made a lot of um, reputation for that concert, and eventually violinists picked it up and played it. And now nowadays it's it's in the finals of competitions, and it's played so much, and it's everywhere. And there's not one young player that wouldn't, or one important young player that wouldn't play it, or most of them play them play yeah. it. And the Schott Verlag told me that it's the most played violin concerto of their whole. Verlag. Okay. Wow. Now, so it's an incredible renaissance that, that went through that piece, and I might be a little part of that renaissance. And uh, I've played it since more than a hundred times. 
well. And it's still great, great fun to do it. Um, every time I discover something new, and um, um, it's just a very attractive piece for the audience, for the orchestra, and for the soloist. Very rewarding, um, and uh, uh, yeah, to be enjoyed on many different levels. And I don't want to compare it to any Brahms concerto or Berg concerto. It's a different world, but it's a very beautiful and incredible craftsmanship and uh, music uh, that you can really gaze at. And um, uh, so, very happy to bring it to Winnipeg, of course. Fantastic. The first person to play it with Vienna yeah, Phil. It's yeah. incredible. That's an incredible honor. That is story. quite incredible. It took until 2004. Wow. <laughs> Until they played it, you know, it's and I remember when you rehearsed it, and we just came from Japan. I played with Seiji Osawa, and we played in Japan with uh, Japan Philharmonic, and they were so on and so incredibly perfect from the first rehearsal on. And um, and then Seiji and me, we took it to to the Salzburg Festival opening concert, and you know, in the, of course, Vienna Philharmonic, I think, is the greatest orchestra in the world. But when they come to the Salzburg Festival, it's the only time of the year where they have some holidays before it in July, two weeks. So they all come out of their holiday and and we met for the first rehearsal and and people were talking and and uh, you know Seiji in Japan is a god and and then there people were kind of really only settling in for for the festival and we played through it and, and the first rehearsal didn't sound so great and they were asking what what is he conducting and and then finally, actually, we, we came together, and I may say that then, of course, the result with them was absolutely amazing and wonderful um, because there's a recording of that concert. But um, but you know, they really did not know this piece, and wow. and um, and now they play it every other season. I'm sure, it's an incredible story. Yeah. Well, I think on that note, we'll. Uh We'll say thank you very much to Benjamin for joining us on this episode of The Silence Between, and thanks, Carl, for being my co-host. It's nice to be here. <laughs> thanks. Great to be here. Thank you. Thanks so much. Ready? Okay, great. Thanks so much for joining us on this episode of The Silence Between, your Winnipeg Symphony Orchestra's official podcast. We will be back next month with all new content, so stay tuned.